The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Book of Mark, chapter 9. Now, for some time, Pastor Rogers has been urging John Light and myself to take up a topical series from the Apostles' Creed, and we have finally and happily have obliged him. This familiar confession, which we regularly use in our Sunday morning worship, was not written by the Apostles, although it summarizes well the teaching that was entrusted to them by the Lord Jesus. Now, to the best of our knowledge, the Apostles' Creed originates in the second century and was largely developed in its present form by the fourth century. Now, we can say that uh, the final form in which we recite today dates back to the seventh century. So it is a very old creed. We can say that our forefathers are very wise to clarify the essential doctrines of the faith to protect the early church from heresy, and also to confirm new converts in the faith. Every legitimate Christian tradition adheres to the teachings in this creed, Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Orthodoxy. Now, this creed makes a clear distinction that separates true Christianity from popular cults like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, each of which are Arian heresies that do not affirm the deity of Christ. It also separates Christianity from non-Trinitarian religions, such as Judaism and Islam. So it's helpful to get this clarity, especially in a very pluralistic age in which we live. Well, tonight we want to begin a several-month exploration into the historic riches of our faith, going through the creed phrase by phrase, and preaching from biblical texts that serve as the foundation of the Apostle Creed's teaching. So tonight, we look at the first phrase, I believe in God, that we might better understand our faith in Christ. So please follow as I read this, this story, this encounter of a man with the Lord Jesus himself in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute." And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. 
and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let us pray. Father, once again we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I can still remember the time that I first understood the gospel and believed that Jesus Christ was my personal Lord and Savior. I was in a car with an elderly gentleman who was driving me from the Monarch Ski Lodge in Colorado to a bus station in Pueblo, Colorado. Jack Morrison was not the first to communicate the gospel to me, but he was, I believe, the instrument used by God to bring me into a saving relationship with himself when I was at the age of 17. I was on a ski trip with my church youth group, and I needed to separate early from my group and catch a flight out of Denver to join my parents in Tennessee for New Year to celebrate with our extended family. Jack was a compassionate man who met me in the lobby of the ski lodge and offered to drive me down to the bus station to catch my bus. He had a gift, a keen insight into the troubled soul of a teen who was burdened by sin and guilt. I can look prior to that occasion and see that God was actively at work in my life many years before that. At, during my junior high years, I attended a Friday morning fellowship, a Christian fellowship led by one of our coaches. It was called Cougars for Christ. I usually went for the donuts and the girls, but we would hear a testimony and I believe we sang occasionally as well. I would have said at that time that I believed in God, though my belief was not effective. It was not a saving belief in God. It was not adequate as a legitimate testimony of being identified as a follower of Christ. James says to the man who says that he believes in God, You believe that God is one. 
you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Friends, to believe that God exists is not enough. There are, in fact, certain beliefs about God that must be affirmed, and we would even say that there's a certain kind of belief that is true, saving faith in Christ. Many of you are perhaps familiar with the semi-popular bumper sticker that is made up of various religious symbols and letters that read the word coexist. I can, I can sympathize with the, the message, at least one of the messages behind that bumper sticker that perhaps is frustrated and struggles to tolerate with all the religious warfare and all the animosity between people of faith. However, I cannot share the implied message behind that bumper sticker that suggests that all religions are practically the same. There is little difference between them. And why can't we just all get along and live at peace? Friends, the different faiths and belief systems of the world are radically different. And we would affirm that Christianity does give us the resources to truly love and respect people of different beliefs and faiths. When we come tonight in our text to a man who has a vivid and personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He meets Jesus, perhaps with a certain set of unchecked assumptions, and has a crisis of faith right there at his feet. A man who we believed walked away, transformed in his understanding of what it means to believe in God. The world would suggest to us that belief is a matter of personal preference, that it's merely an issue of convenience, not something to give the very top priority of your life. But to the contrary, biblical belief is personal trust and loyalty to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Friends, I hope tonight to demonstrate from this passage that true faith requires a crisis of belief that it resolves certain beliefs about God and results in companionship with God. First, a crisis of faith. By my study and survey, I'm pretty well convinced that every example in Scripture in which somebody is saved comes in the context of a crisis. The very premise behind the word saved is that somebody is in grave danger. Abraham was in danger of dying childless until God promised to him a son. His faith was then tested to a point of crisis when he was commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac on an altar. The people Israel faced certain destruction with their backs against the Red Sea until God parted the waters. The nation was saved out of crisis. Well, just like Jairus, the synagogue ruler whose daughter was dying and came in an emergency situation to Jesus, so the father in our text comes to Jesus in grave crisis. There are a few greater crises for a parent. 
and more trying and taxing for a parent than having a child, suffering with a child through an incurable, or perhaps undiagnosed illness. The loss of a child to death. Or having a child suffer some kind of permanent disability, some kind of condition that disenables them to live a healthy life is a, many parents, their worst nightmare. This boy, the son of the father, was in grave danger, suffering the influence and control of a demon who was bent on his destruction with a threat of death by fire or water. His father is desperate as he comes to plea with Jesus, but even as he shifts to a measure of doubt, having in his first attempt seen failure in his request at the hands of the incapable disciples. Jesus uses this occasion to not only rebuke the father and the disciples and the scribes, he actually calls the entire generation faithless. Jesus vents his frustrations with the rhetorical question, how long must I bear with you? His voice echoes the words of God through the prophets. Moses railed against Israel, an unbelieving and stiff-necked people. The way Jesus handles this scene is quite instructive. Notice that Jesus does not go immediately into action, even though the boy is brought to him and is convulsing and foaming at the mouth. Rather, Jesus asks the father a question. How long has the boy suffered this condition, servant who is familiar with suffering, enters into the traumatic chaos of this family. The father answers the question factually, but then betrays his self-protecting doubts with the statement, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Well, the one who is bold in compassion can see that there is more than one ailment here. Not only is the boy in danger, but the the father suffers grave doubts. The father's words are taken by Jesus and laid in front of him that he may see his offense. And in doing so, Jesus offers his assurance to all the faithful. All things are possible for the one who believes. The father's crisis reaches its climax. As he expresses in his weakness, I believe, help my unbelief. There's perhaps no more refreshing and genuine confession in all of Scripture. A place where you and I can identify with the weakness and instability of faith. As I look back on the months prior to my own conversion during my junior year of high school, I can testify that I was going through something of a crisis, an identity crisis. By all outward appearances, I seemed to be doing quite well that junior year of high school. I was getting straight A's. I had a girlfriend. I was starting quarterback on the football team. What more could a guy want? And yet, none of it was enough to satisfy. My mind was plagued with anxious questions about the future. Why was I striving so? And for what 
purpose, to get good grades, to get into a good college, to go on to medical school, my ambition at that time, to maybe support a family, to grow old and die. As I looked into the future, all I saw was futility and emptiness. And on top of that, I was suffering an increasing burden and awareness of my sin, and yet I did not know what to do with my guilt. People face crises of many kinds. Some of us will suffer health crises. For some of us, it's financial. For others, some sort of relational disaster. Crisis, all crises, will either be met with faith or despair. And there are those who will try to dismiss God to handle their crises on their own. And there are those who can pretend for a while to get along in life without trusting in God. And yet for every single person, there lies in the future an ultimate crisis. The crisis that each of us will face at death. As we enter into the afterlife, yes, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will face the serious danger of eternal punishment and separation from God unless we are covered by the blood, the atoning blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul adds in Ephesians 2, 8, that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, giving none of us grounds for boasting. Friends, Jesus accepts our faith. Though it be as small as a mustard seed, though it may be tainted with doubt like this struggling father, Jesus will not despise the weak and yet earnest faith in his provision. Our confession of faith out of our crisis must look to who God is and to what he is able to do for us in that same crisis. The basic expression of any faith must affirm at least two beliefs. God must be capable to do something about our crisis, and he must care enough to act on our behalf. The child's simple dinner table prayer, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Summarizes well these two basic points. An adequate expression of faith must embrace both God's compassion and his power. Now, this father in our text must have heard by word on the street that there was a prophet in Israel who was able to heal the sick. He had sufficient grounds to hope that Jesus might do something for his son's condition. Jesus had a reputation for compassion. They gave this man the confidence that he would get relief for his son in torment. And so when he comes to Jesus, he asks that he might compassionately help him, even as he is slipping into doubt about his abilities. 
Now, I suppose that most of us here, most of us might, if we had to go see a doctor for a very serious condition, most of us might conclude that we didn't necessarily need a nice and compassionate doctor. Rather, we, would, we want somebody with a competency and the skill to meet our need. We can put up with a professional lacking in bedside manner, but who has the skill to deliver the goods. Thankfully, in Jesus, we have one who has bedside manner and the most remarkable skill in the universe. Jesus is able to diagnose what is missing in this father's faith just as well as he can put his finger on the son's tormented condition. In response to the father's cry for help my unbelief, Jesus says nothing but demonstrates his power by commanding and addressing the spirit to relieve and leave the boy. Interesting that the spirit seemed to understand who Jesus was and what he could do better than the people could. But the spirit had no loyalty or affection for Jesus. This demon had to helplessly obey a superior, far superior power in leaving the boy for dead. The peoples feared for his life, even as Jesus gently takes him by the hand and raises him back to life again. I believe that one of the pillars that had to fall in my belief system when I came to the Lord was my insistency on control. I had to concede that I was not God and that I had very little control over my future. During that season of my junior year, I was suffering a variety of anxiety attacks until I bowed and affirmed that God alone is sovereign and yielded control into his almighty hands. And though that brought me temporary relief, I had this growing awareness an uncomfortable sense of being alienated from God, questioning, why would he help me? Why would he have anything to do with me after all that I had done? I had been reading scripture and was increasingly burdened and convicted over my sin. And so it was that I was ripe for harvest when I met Jack Morrison, who helped me understand God's compassion by sending Jesus to suffer and die my punishment in my place, on the cross that you and I deserve. Many people's problems of unbelief with God are struggling to reconcile and maintain these two very things. There are those who can accept God's abilities but doubt that he has compassion. And then there are those who trust that he cares for them but question his ability to do anything about it. David writes in Psalm 62, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. You see, he is not a caring God who would love to help us, but really can't do anything about it. Nor is he an almighty miser that cares very little about our concerns. No, he is the Lord the Lord of glory, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. 
He is the God who through the Son invites you and I into companionship with himself. Jesus' questions to the Father and lifting the boy up by the hand and his final response to his disciples' questions demonstrate the relational nature of salvation. Now, Jesus, we suppose, might have just set up shop in Israel. Would it not have been more efficient to let the masses come to him in droves and he say a word or put a hand over him to heal their diseases? Was it not really necessary for him to spend the personal time that he did with the needy and the forsaken? We think of the widow of Nain who lost her only son. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, alienated from the people of Jericho. A woman suffering a condition of bleeding for 12 years. In each case, Jesus offers them personal attention to not only heal their bodies, but to restore them into fellowship with their creator God. The list of saints that we find in the popular Hall of Faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11. I believe put on profile not mighty heroes of the faith as much as it does people who walked with God by faith. Verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Scripture repeatedly invites us to draw near to God, to seek after God, and to rely upon the Lord our God in saving trust. I love the words of Lamentations 3, 21 and following. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. Is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We see from cover to cover a personal dynamic that God wants companionship with his people. That which was lost when God once walked in the garden with Adam and Eve in true companionship, that is the scar of sin that separated that pure fellowship, that companionship, and yes, belief. Believing that God exists. Yes, believing true things about God are all necessary, but even more so, what God delights in is those who will pursue him and seek him and have companionship with him, like father and son. Notice at the end of our passage, when Jesus and the disciples are alone after the exorcism, the disciples ask him why they could not cast out this spirit. It's interesting to me that Jesus did not say that they needed more faith. He simply says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I believe that Jesus is talking about fellowship, companionship. That the nature of this faith, of this dependent trust upon the Lord our God, that putting trust in the power of God is a personal, relational act of companionship. That what Jesus was exhorting 
his disciples to do was to stop trusting in their own wits. This was not a matter of technique. This was not a dry, mechanical exercise of propositional truths to believe in. Rather, wrestling before God in a spirit of intense fellowship was the very means by which deliverance would come through their ministry and by which people would experience the joy of their salvation. I believe in God. Not just that he exists, not just in right things about God, but in personal trust of walking with him in companionship like Abraham. You know, you really can't say you believe in the powers of an antibiotic that promises to save your life from infection unless you ingest it. If you are on an airplane that is going down and is certainly going to crash, it will do you no good to put the parachute on and go down with the plane. You have to jump out of the plane for the parachute to deliver you safely to the ground. If you are trapped in a burning building with no way of escape except out an open window with a fireman on a ladder ready to take you by the hand, you have to take the leap. Not to do so means certain destruction. In every instance, in every situation, belief requires action. And it requires knowledgeable action, trusting in the power and the compassion of the one who can provide deliverance. And it means ingesting and digesting the truth and the reality of the living word of the God who became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and learning to depend upon him and walk with him by faith. I believe my four-year-old faith in the Lord was put to the test when I was a junior in college. I was still at that time very determined to go to medical school and apply later on in that spring. I was loaded down with the heaviest assignments of my college career that fall of my junior year. I actually planned to step back from my involvement with Campus Crusade for Christ until my campus director challenged me to lead a freshman Bible study for young men. I conceded to give it a try, figuring that if nobody showed up, I could say that I tried and and not continue with it. To my astonishment, there were eight young men that showed up, some believers and some were not. And we met. And I saw God work. And I saw God draw young men into relationship with himself. I saw young men growing to feed upon the word of God in ways that stirred up within me. A passion and a desire to see and multiply disciples to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the craziness of my schedule, when I barely had enough time to prepare a Bible study lesson, I saw God use me and teach me a very important principle. That ministry is always the work of God. Ministry is the work and power of God through weak earthen vessels like you and I. It's not about us. 
It's not about my puny abilities. My job is to show up and to be faithful and to trust him, but believe that he indeed will deliver. And he has never failed me yet. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Friend, in the crises of life, we are exhorted to cry out to him. We are exhorted from Scripture to believe upon the power of God and his compassionate intentions to reach in and pull us out of the miry pit and the, the bogs of life. But ultimately, I believe in God means companionship. It means walking with God and trusting that he will deliver, that he will provide. As we explore the Apostles' Creed in weeks and months to come, may we learn to confess it more deeply, with greater appreciation, with more assurance of faith, and may it strengthen us that we might grow with deeper trust and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in Jesus Christ you have initiated, that you have pursued us, that you have given us reason to believe, to trust in your unfailing promises and provisions. And thank you that we can gather tonight to fellowship in your name. We ask, O Lord, your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.